This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 19, Why Britain Prevailed. Throughout the 19th century, France remained a chief player and maritime rival to Britain. The two were long-standing enemies, but after 1815, never again would they fight each other. Yet, a cultural animosity lingered. Disparagement was curiously expressed in terms of food, what the other ate. The French scornfully referred to the British as les roast beef. To the British, the French were frogs or froggy, despite an official protest by the French ambassador when the sobriquet appeared on the London stage. One mighty roast beef was the Englishman's food. It ennobled our veins and enriched our blood. Our soldiers are brave and our courtiers were good. Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. But since we have learned from all vapor in France to eat the ragouts as well as to dance, we are fed up with nothing but vain complaisance. Oh, the roast beef of old England and old English roast beef. As we've noted, France failed to create hegemony on the continent. In a protracted attempt, it suffers one and a half million dead in the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. France had tried to generate wealth through gaining territory on the continent. Britain did it by trade, manufacture, and the skillful handling of money all over the world. For France, war following upheaval resulted in the sapping of energies, lack of consensus, and relative political instability. Less industrialized than Britain, France concentrated on high-quality goods like Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Hermès. Britain engaged in mass manufacture, Pilkington glass, Sheffield cutlery, or Vickers armaments. This difference did not lead to global economic advantage for France. But the French were innovators and pioneers, creating powerful impact in maritime affairs. The shell-firing gun, the screw-propelled armored warship, and ultimately the torpedo boat in the 1880s and the submarine in the 1890s. The French see new technology as a way to challenge Britain, the government funds research and experimentation, what the British were more inclined to leave to the private sector. Impressive on paper, the French Navy provoked from the British periodic invasion scares, but it pursued no consistent strategy of naval development. Rapid obsolescence and soaring costs characterized the new naval weaponry. This hampered consistency of planning. The cost of ships rose because of their increasing complexity and the accelerating obsolescence of guns and propulsion systems. 
French initiatives may have driven changes in armaments, but France lacked the industrial capacity to support them. The strength of British iron and metallurgical industries gave advantage to Britain over France. The French lacked enough iron plate to build iron-hulled, armor-clad ships in any number. Their ship, Gloire, in the late 1850s, was a pioneering prototype, the first seagoing, screw-propelled, armor-clad ship. But she had a wooden hull, and she carried sails. The British could afford to relax. Their industrial capacity permitted them to catch up and exceed rapidly if they chose to do so. Their repulsed to Gloire followed in 14 months. The warrior, painted a menacing black, was iron-hulled, not wooden, screw-propelled and sheathed with five inches of iron armor plate and armed with shell-firing guns. She was the first seagoing, iron-clad, iron ship. In Portsmouth today, you can see her proudly riding at anchor, big and beautiful, a floating monument to British power. But like Glar, she was transitional, carrying sails as well as steam. 19th century France built an oceanic empire, second only to that of the British. Colonial rivalry in Africa carries France close to war with Britain later in the 19th century, but French concerns remained inevitably European, specifically the security of the eastern frontier, the Rhine, where France faced a rising Germany. This sense of vulnerability drove other choices. And despite the ideological differences, the French regarded Russia as a strategic balance to Germany and tended to invest surplus capital there. And ultimately, an unlikely alliance would emerge between the two powers. In 1869, the opening of the Suez Canal represents a triumph for France. French initiative built it, a matter of individual entrepreneurship, not state. Fernand de Lesseps, diplomat and civil engineer, orchestrated the whole enterprise. French private interests, with some help from the Ottoman Turks, provided the capital. French contractors, some other Europeans, and Egyptian labor participated in a mix of steam-powered excavators, shovels, and bare hands carving through masses of mud and sand in a 10-year project costing twice the estimates, but its use would exceed all expectations. The British were initially hostile, but Prime Minister Disraeli enabled the British government to buy into it, and Britain thus gained control of one of the world's great shortcuts and a valuable choke point like Gibraltar at the other end of the Mediterranean. France 
in maritime affairs remained a strategic hybrid, torn between the Mediterranean versus the Atlantic, Europe versus overseas, the continental versus the oceanic, and their new global territorial empire in Africa and Southeast Asia lacked articulated linkages or a global trading system. In no military sphere, at least after 1870, was France the decisive international leader, army or navy. And after 1870, France's primary concern had to be Germany. From victory in 1815, Great Britain emerges as the only real power at the time. What were the elements of continued British success? There is, of course, the material, the sheep producing wool, and in the machine age, iron and coal in proximity, but beyond the material lies the human resource expressed in technological innovation with a series of talented inventors in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And there were the high financial and organizational skills as displayed in the Navy and all its complexities, that which our friend Pepys personifies. These provided leadership in peace and war. Then, too, we must crank in social and intellectual forces, a rising democracy with an increasingly representative government, and, at least for the elite, a high standard of education. Because Britain's second empire was multi-ethnic, it provided an opportunity for a far richer cultural interplay the rich legacy that Britain is experiencing now as more and more of hitherto subject peoples choose to live in Britain to an often uncertain, even hostile uh, reception. We're seeing a reverse flow in far greater numbers than during the Age of Empire when Britons sallied forth to so many places. But offsetting the advantages, Britain faced strategic challenges as the century matured and drew to its close. The switch from wired communications, cables, to wireless, radio, revolutionized shipping. Ships at sea could now communicate over great distances, which carried huge advantage for war and for commerce. But radio was not subject to the control that wire had provided. Thus, the British did not have the strategic advantage that they had previously enjoyed. Another challenge for Britain was the early 20th century switch from coal to oil in seagoing propulsive systems. Oil becomes the preferable fuel, providing greater caloric efficiency and more thermal content. Compared to coal, a ship could go farther for the same weight of fuel. Oil-fired machinery requires fewer people to operate, and the fuel is much easier to handle. Ultimately, ships even developed the ability to transfer oil at sea. Coal was bulky, 
demanding a hands-on process. It was laborious to keep the fires burning. Taking on coal becomes a nightmare. Everyone dreaded that chore, customarily done by ship's company. Coal dust dirtied the entire ship to the dismay of captains who wanted everything kept tidy. Bristol fashion, as the British termed it. The ideal being to maintain the pristine condition of a ship when she left port. Britain had ample coal, but no oil, at least then. So this change posed huge strategic disadvantage. It would make Southwest Asia take on new significance because of its oil. Although, until the mid-20th century, Britain would buy most of its oil from the USA. And finally, new powers rise to challenge the existing order. New powers enrich the global scene in Europe and Asia, Germany, Japan, and ultimately the United States. How did this great change occur? First, let us next consider Germany in episode 20. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg, recording by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré, Goodbye until next time.